Welcome to the first meeting of 2020, January the 9th of the Science Fiction Club meeting. And uh, Roger, we, we haven't established this formally, but Roger has been going first many times, and he hasn't been here for, how long has it been? Two months? Three? I can't remember. Anyway, you well, want to go first this time? The reason I have gone first in the past is it started out with that Talking Communities software where I really had trouble telling when the discussion of one book ended and another one started and I didn't exactly know when to jump in so I decided to solve the problem by trying to be quick and get in first so I wouldn't have to worry about it. With this, these Zoom meetings it doesn't seem to be such a problem because everybody can be heard at once and people are being called on. But I'm uh, willing to go first if you want me to go first. Is uh, any? Do I hear any objections? Not at all. No. Nope. Okay, go ahead then. Okay. <laughs> this time I wanted to tell you about a book by Peter Benchley. Now, Peter Benchley is not known as a science fiction writer. His most famous book is Jaws, which was published in about 1974, and I never read that one. I did a long time ago see the movie, though, and there was really nothing about it that I could identify as science fiction. Um, there was another book, I think it was called Beast, where I think it giant squid starts attacking people. It's kind of, hard, kind of hard for me to remember. That just did not make a big uh, dent in my memory, but I don't think that one was science fiction either. But I came across, across one that was published about 20 years after Jaws in 1994, and it was called White Shark. And it is definitely science fiction. Um, I scanned it for Bookshare um, a little less than, about maybe about four and a half years ago. And just a little while ago, I checked um, Bard and found out that Bard has it too. And on the Bard um, metadata page, it doesn't, it is not listed as science fiction. I think it was listed as suspense or adventure or something like that. And the, on uh, Bookshare, it is under the category of science fiction, but that's only because I put it there. It doesn't seem like anybody recognizes it as science fiction. I suppose because the author is not known as a science fiction writer, but, um, in my mind, it is definitely science fiction. Um, and since the author isn't known as a science fiction writer, usually when that happens, someone who is a best-selling author but does not write science fiction, they try their hand at science fiction, and it really shows that they are writing in a field that they know nothing about. In this case, I would say uh, Peter Benchley does come off with a fairly decent science fiction show, a story. Um, it happens that in 1945, right at the end of World War II, there is a secret 
bioengineering project going on in Nazi Germany. And since the war is winding down and it looks like Germany is going to lose, the scientist who is in charge of this program takes the main subject of the bioengineering program and takes off with it in a submarine. And somewhere in the mid-Atlantic, the submarine is attacked and has to dive. And it dives too far and the pressure crushes it and the submarine sinks. But the uh, bioengineering project, which is housed in a um, metal box, lands on the bottom of the ocean near the mid-Atlantic ridge that is very deep. So we flash forward to about um, 1994 and some oceanographers from Connecticut are out in the mid-Atlantic studying the uh, mid-Atlantic ridge and they find a certain area where uh, they find a lot of dead shrimp. Well, not really the shrimp, more like their shells and dead uh, shellfish and so on. Really, their shells too. It looks like something has been eating them, but they can't. They haven't found anything in at that depth and in that area that would be likely to be eating these animals. But while they are doing their exploring, they find this. I think it's a box made of. I think it's bronze or something like that, and. They, you know, how did it get there? Must have fallen off a ship or something like that. They don't know what it is. They bring it, they raise it and put it aboard their ship. Um, and then they start sailing towards shore. Um, they don't necessarily make it though. They get pretty close to their home base in Connecticut, out in the bay or something. And, well, their ship is found floating with no crew. And there is a metal box on deck. Um, some guy opens the metal box. Um, that's the end of him. He's out of the story. And it seems that these Nazi scientists have genetically engineered a human being to be some kind of predatory sea creature. He was going to be used for sabotage in the war and for fighting. Um, well, he's built for fighting in the water, so he was going to be a kind of a naval weapon or something like that. And he is a real monster. He can tear apart anybody who comes after him, and he is has a voracious appetite, so he eats pretty much everything. But in any case, he gets loose in the bay there, and fish keep disappearing, and people keep disappearing, and whatever is out of the water keeps disappearing. And by the way, uh, let me get to where the name of the story came from. Uh, he is known as the White Shark, and I think that um, 
the original project that developed him was known as Project White Shark or something like that. As for White Sharks itself, there is only one white shark that even shows up in the story at all. And that is a white shark that's being studied by some of the scientists in the area, but it plays a very minor role in the story. White Shark of the title is this uh, human-like creature. Well, he starts running out of things to eat in the water. He comes ashore. And he's kind of an amphibian. But he knows enough to sneak around and not let himself be seen. And he starts attacking dogs. A dog starts barking at him at one point. No more dog. Uh, finally, he starts attacking humans. And he becomes a real menace. And by the way, once he gets on land, um, he goes through, you know, true amphibian transformation. Just like a tadpole becomes a frog that can no longer completely exist underwater, although it can for short periods of time, or salamanders or what have you, this amphibian becomes a land animal that can no longer breathe underwater. He loses his gills, but um, he can still operate underwater for short periods of time, but he becomes kind of a land predator. In any case, there are some people, I think the oceanographers and other scientists who realize that there is some kind of creature stalking the town, and they have to get work to work on defeating him and at the end, well, of course they end up defeating him, but they have to use certain oceanographic equipment to defeat him. And I can see why this would be labeled as something like a thriller or a suspense story or something like that, because it is all of that. But for whatever reason, it's not labeled science fiction in all the catalogs and stuff, but in my mind, it is definitely science fiction. This is an entirely science fictional concept. Um, I suppose, since Peter Benchley is the number one best-selling author, with Jaws at least, I am supposing that it, back in its time, this story was a bestseller too, but I didn't see it listed under the bestseller classification on Bard. But um, it, I would think, though, that this is probably the kind of science fiction story that the science fiction fan would be likely to miss simply because nobody seems to label it science fiction. So there you go. What do you think about it? Wow, I have a question. So was this guy hiding in the box until they opened it? And if so, how was he eating all the shellfish? How's he eating all the what? The shellfish down at you said they were. They he found is, all these shells. He is, he is very uh, practically invulnerable. That's why it is so really, really difficult to defeat him in the end. Why it is so really difficult to kill him. But yeah, he lives at the bottom of the ocean. He can withstand the enormous pressures there, and yes, he eats the wildlife. 
that he finds on hand there ever since he was sunk in 1945. And yes, whenever he's not out foraging, he goes back to his box. Ah, uh, okay. I guess it's kind of like his uh, sleeping place or something like that. Hmm, okay. Hmm, hmm interesting. How, how well, that certainly would have made it a good movie also, I would imagine. I wonder if he was trying to recreate the Jaws magic that he got with, uh, you know, the movie in, all yeah. the, in the 70s. Maybe it, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a similar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Only more science fictional, you know, actually. How, how long is the book, approximately? Um, like I said, I just checked Bard before I got here. And it said seven hours and something. My yeah, version, no. I read it as I was scanning it. For, Not very long. For Bookshare. And it... Um, well, it seemed a lot longer to me, but, but that was because I was going through it page by page and checking each page and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So I was kind of surprised when I looked at Bard and found out it's not quite eight hours long. But it's not a real long book, no. Yeah. Peter Benchley. You know, I've actually never seen that movie. Wow. I haven't read the book either. Jaws? Yep. Wow. It was a pretty good movie. The, the first one was good. The third, by the third one, it was like, eh. <laughs> I, I saw it back when, before I lost my eyesight. I saw it on television. Okay. And it, um, the movie just wasn't, it, it, just wasn't really quite my kind of movie. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, everybody knows the plot. A big shark is stalking yeah. everybody and eating boats and stuff like that, so, you know. But I, I would say I never read the book Jaws either, but my guess is that White Shark, at least according to my tastes, is a lot better than Jaws, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds actually better. So... Well, Martin. Okay. Well, uh, what do you, uh, you have something? Yeah. Um, I, it's, I read it several months ago. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a brief synopsis, the beginning synopsis from on, you know, on Bard. It's called The Lantern of God. And I think the author is John something, <laughs> which you'll hear when I play it. The brief is and then I'll give you my impressions of what I can remember of it. Okay, so here, here we go. Annotation. Two races have evolved since an interstellar ship became defective 2,000 years ago and was forced to offload its cargo on a deserted planet. One group, the Romans, are androids. The other, the Albions, are human descendants of the ship's crew. Elver Brokles, the Armian ambassador, knows his emperor intends to conquer the Ruans, but Elver falls in love with an android and sides with the Ruans against his own people. 1989. From the book jacket, 1989. they were English right. androids, designed for maximum aesthetic sensibility in the vehicle. 
These human gene-based androids were intended for consumption on the wealthier colony planets. When the interstellar cargo ship transporting them to their fate suffered catastrophic systems failure, all that changed. Automatic emergency procedures dropped them on a nearby deserted planet. And in the 2,000 years that have passed since then, the droids have forgotten their prominence and created a world of their own. But real humans, descendants of the starship, have arrived upon the scene. Unless they do something to save themselves, a 2,000-year era of droid freedom is about to come to a sharp bloody end. Okay, so that, that gives you a, a brief summary of it. Um, it's sort of strange because the names of all the characters are, they sound like, they sound like the, the, the um, let me just stop my phone here. They sound like the, like from the middle, the, the mid, um, middle ages. There are a lot of them are like Italian sounding names and everything. In fact, he has a, a list of all the characters in the, ver in the beginning of the book. But it, ta it takes place, as I say, on this sort of idyllic planet. There's, the technology is very low. The, it's almost like the Middle Ages, they still use sailing ships and weapons. But the interesting thing is the droids have developed a way of being able to read other people's minds. And when the ambassador from the humans come with the idea of trying to check out the, you know, them out and, and, and you know, sort of as a, as a scout for, the, for when the armies of the Empire come to conquer them, he doesn't realize that they're able to read his mind and know what he's planning on doing. And in the meantime, he falls in love with the daughter, with the daughter uh, of the emperor. And let me just stop this again. And um, and and eventually, um, there is a war between the groups, and he helps them create new weapons using gunpowder, grenades, things like that. There's some other creatures. Um, Sort of mermaid, mermaid and sea serpents that, that are that are on the side of the of the droids. So in the long run, uh, um, they, there was a war, and, and and he's able to to prevent the uh, the emperor and the that the human empire from conquering the um, uh, the android droids. And and I think it ends up he marrying the the emperor's daughter and living happily basically happily ever after. I can't see how the androids could possibly lose, though, if they can read their minds. Of the, I mean, exactly. there wouldn't be. I wouldn't see how there'd be a contest. Well, it, it, turns way. Out, it turns out that he, you know, he could never figure out how they knew what he was planning on doing. It's, mm -hmm. And it's also there's a lot of religion involved in it too, because the the androids sort of they have a lot of like um, priests and, and and mystics there. And and they they serve they serve sort of a a god or or a spirit, um, so it, it has interesting things. I, I found it a little difficult because of the of the names of the characters, which are very difficult to remember. Who's the author? Uh, oh, you know, I didn't I didn't say that. Um, let me let me just turn, turn that thing back on here and and go back to the beginning and tell you, is John something? Hang on for just a back on and get it out. It doesn't have a it doesn't give a book number for some reason, right? In the beginning, but if one were to start, well the lantern of God on, on bar you would come up with. Yeah. But I'm just I want it for the 
people who are listening late. Okay, hold on. Just one moment. Here it is. Let me go to the beginning. John Dalmas. Name sort of rings a faint bell, but I never heard of that book. But and I might even be imagining the faint bell because <laughs> it is very faint. It's pretty long. It's seventeen oh. hours. Oh really? Yeah, and there's a lot of details of how you know how he you know the life on the, in that mm -hmm. in, in the village where he or in the in the, the continent where he is and how he mm -hmm. has minders you know taking care of him, looking out for him, and also making sure. Once they realize what he's up to, uh, yeah. it's, it's quite a bit of description. Okay. Well, boy, we have a diversity. As uh, Liz, you haven't been here for how long? Is it? I don't remember. Actually, it's been a while. Um, yes, it has I been. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I was it's taking okay. classes last semester, and it was I'll quite let busy. it go this time. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I read the Andromeda Evolution by um, uh, Daniel Wilson and Michael Crichton, oh. and so it pick, it uh, picks up uh, about thirty years past the Andromeda Strain. And in order to read the book, I had to go back and reread Andromeda Strain because it had been a long time. Um, overall, I found the book interesting. Um, at times, it really kind of got weighted down in a lot of scientific technical stuff, which doesn't interest me, but might be interesting to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the interesting thing is, is they uh, they came. There's some alternative uh, reasoning why the uh, space stations were developed, and actually, and, and how they um, how they actually came to demise as well. Um, the strain has mutated, and you might want to go. You might want to, for the benefit of those few, perhaps who haven't aren't familiar with the basic story. Could you give an out uh, an outline of the basic story of where it starts from? Oh gosh. <laughs> All right, I didn't know. Well, Andromeda Strain is... is well, a, it's just, you know, some yeah. people might be lost because they might not have read the Andromeda Strain. I mean, I know many people have, but... I, okay, I, I'm, I'm trying to... Actually, Martin... I'm trying to remember the name of the town in New Mexico. I think it's New Mexico, isn't it? Where where the, the it basically comes down and people... Uh, it, it It's a it's a um, alien strain that causes the blood to um, congeal, basically. It, it basically turns to powder. People die almost instantly. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's, yeah. that's helpful. That's how it began. <laughs> and so it, it, affected, it affected this whole town. Um, and there was, uh, the government wanted to destroy the town and the Andromeda strain so that it wouldn't spread because it was mutating. And... Um, it continues to mutate, basically, in the Andromeda evolution. Um, the only survivors in the Andromeda strain were a baby and an old man who was an alcoholic. Um, oh, maybe the, they didn't like that. Uh, huh? They didn't li I, maybe oh, they didn't like yeah, the taste it, of it alcohol. Turned, 
<laughs> well, it turns out that the guy who was, I can't remember, um, the alcoholic was actually drinking Sterno. And it caused the blood to, yeah, it was the, it had to do with the acidic level in the blood, mm -hmm. <laughs> the makeup of oh. the blood. Um, so in the Andromeda evolution, it does continue to mutate. Um, the baby is heavily factored into the Andromeda evolution. Um, and it has a satisfying ending. I, I, you know, I just, I don't want to go into much more detail. That's the end of the, yeah. But is that the end of the story, or is there more? I don't more know. Sequels? Or are there more? Well, sequels? I don't know. Uh -huh. I would think uh, it could potentially be. See, what at, at the end of the Andromeda evolution, they do leave it kind of open ended. They manage mm. to deflect the strain away from the Earth, but who knows? It could come back. You know, you just never know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know. I, having having passed away might lead one to think that there might not be any more sequels, but that isn't always the case anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, with oh, well, Michael because Crichton having author up. The oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, there's a guy doing Zelazny's Amber books. I can't remember his name, but he, he's doing Amber books. And, well, you know, David so. Lagerkrantz picked up where Star. Um, Steg Lyson. I'm sorry, my tongue's not working tonight. Anyway, with the uh, Dragon Tattoo series, you know, so people mm -hmm. are picking up other people's series all the yep. time. But right. I don't know about this one. I, it's not on Bard yet. It, I got it through mm -hmm. Audible. Um, uh, it, it says, one of the things that I'm struggling with is I'm having a hard time finding some science fiction stuff that, that I find really holds mm. my interest these days. So that's why oh. I keep coming back. I keep doing keep hoping that maybe there's some suggestions that'll be good, but this one was okay. I, I picked it up basically because it was a continuation of the Andromeda strain and uh, it's okay. What kind of stuff do you like? I mean, that helps to figure out what you might uh, what else you might want to read. What kind of stuff um, do you like? I love time travel stuff. You know what you could yeah. do? And you don't have to buy any. If you go to Amazon and type in the title of a book and click on the page, and it'll say, other people viewed these books. Other right. people bought yeah. these books. Yeah. I found I just found several over the holidays that way that mm -hmm. I think I'm going to get. I'm going to ask for my birthday um, okay. because that is a good way. And, of course, Roger can tell you about uh, Goodreads. I mean, yeah, there's certainly ways of getting other recommendations for stuff you like there, too. I, I think the recommendations at Goodreads are better than those at Amazon. Uh -huh. uh, each book page does have a section on it, if it is as, if it's popular enough, at least. I don't know what the threshold is of enough people shelve it to get this, but there's a section that um, people who read this book also read. And the mm -hmm. list, I think, is better than what you find on Amazon. Mm -hmm. The difference okay, is... Okay, I'll check out Goodreads. Yeah. yeah. And Sherry, of course, is right here. She likes time travel. I, know I that. do. I so uh, she can be a personal assistant oh. if she <laughs> if she wishes. Uh, I wouldn't volunteer her, but... Oh, I would be happy to. I think Liz and I have probably already talked about time travel books. Yeah, because I'm yes. not as into them, but... Uh, and so I can't help you as much. So I know Else Break the Camp. He was pretty famous for yep. time travel books. Um, um, 
who else? Paul Paul Anderson. Something like the time travel. Paul Anderson wife. did some stuff. He did mm -hmm. a whole time. Oh, there's uh, the Janet. Uh, um, what, what's her name? Uh, Cage Baker's company books, uh, their time travel books. Cage Baker, look her up. Uh, she's done, a, she's passed away too, not too long I'm ago. I'm familiar she did, with her. Is it did K? a bunch of Cage, K A G E Baker. Okay. She did uh, huh. books called The Company, and they go around through history and solve things. And, yeah, and I uh, think okay, now that sounds interesting. I'll check those out. There's tons and tons of yeah. time travel. An excellent books. time travel book is The Man Who Folded Himself by David Gerald. That's one that Rogers mentioned. Folded that himself? Yep, he goes back. Well, you can Roger can tell you more about it. I've heard about it, but okay. I haven't read it. Well, it's it's let's let's put it this way. It explores all the implications of time travel like meeting yourself in the past. Oh and okay. This guy, this guy travels back and forth through his whole life meeting various versions of himself and in fact there is even a house that he sets up to have a party in that contains dozens and dozens of him at different oh, ages, no. and they're all partying with each house. other. You know, that sounds like something that might give me a headache if I thought about it exactly. too much. Mm. <laughs> it sounds like the dreams of a narcissist, too. <laughs> oh, my God. What or an ultimate about, nightmare. What about books we read? Or I don't know. We all read or something we read about that hunt, big game, hundreds of takes people back in time. To that, was the that was the Elsberg de Camp yeah. book, uh, whose title escapes me at the moment, but I, I forget think certainly too. it'd be easy to find. It's yeah, on Bard. I have it's it on, Bard on my also. list. It's awesome, yeah. That's a good book, okay. actually, and I'm not a huge time travel fan, but I always like dinosaurs. So yeah. if you take me back in time to go to dinosaurs, I'll be happy to go. <laughs> I don't want to go back in history, in human history, but I'll go back to the dinosaurs. <laughs> Uh, if somebody wants to go there on time travel. The Sound of Thunder, of course, was the classic time travel book uh, story, not a book. Uh, it was a novella or novelette by Ray Bradbury, of course. Mm -hmm. He steps on a butterfly and the future's changed when they come back to the present and the different president and everything. That was a classic. Uh, well, Sherry, you came early and I left you for almost last i'm sorry about that's that. okay i am totally fine with that and i can empathize with liz i have trouble finding sci-fi anymore too because they're all young adults everything that comes on bard seems to be young adult and i don't mind some young adult books but i don't really want to read about teenage cadets going off into space and having adventures yeah, there's just, a lot of that there is a lot of that but this month i found something called the last astronaut by david wellington and it's about 13 hours. It's on Bard. It starts out with um, this woman, Sally Jansen, who is um, in command of a mission to Mars. And she ends up having to scrap it. There's some kind of accident. And she ends up having to scrap it. And not only that, but a ship is destroyed and a person is killed. It's not really her fault. It's an accident. But she gets blackballed from everything. And the beginning of this book is a little weak. I think it was a little confusing. But then somebody from this corporation called K Company spots an anomaly in space. It's something that's decelerating. And so they know it's not a natural thing. So NASA calls Sally Jansen back because there's an old guy that still works there that knew she was quite good. 
And they send her and three other people, including this guy from this Corporation K company who defects over to NASA up to see what this thing is and if it's dangerous. Meanwhile, K company sends up three astronauts of their own because they want to profit off this thing. And stupidly, all three of them enter this, this giant thing and don't come out. So when NASA gets there, they know that these three astronauts from K Company are missing inside this thing. And they kind of want to rescue them, but they don't want to, you know, they want to take their time and be responsible, unlike the K Company astronauts. Meanwhile, it's kind of nice. The military is involved, and they're ready to try to investigate how to destroy this thing, which is just gigantic. But for a change, which I think is a nice change, they aren't gung-ho to just blow it up immediately. They're willing to wait for NASA to explore it. Usually that's kind of a trope that the military blows everything out of the sky immediately. So that was kind of a nice change. And in the middle of this book, there's tons of action. The exploration of this thing, it's really intriguing. They go in and everything is frozen solid. There's all these giant ice fields that they have to make their way across and they, they're trying to send up signals to the other people and they're noticing that ice is starting to melt, which is kind of um, not a good sign perhaps. And they continue to explore it and so much action happens that after about six hours, I was wondering, gosh, what else can they do in this book? It was, it was pretty full of action. Then the ending is a little weak and I don't know if, how much you want me to spoil of what this thing turns out to be. But it is interesting and different. And that's it. Well, when we used to discuss books, we, well, I don't remember if there was ever a consensus, but when we discussed books that we had all read, or we assumed that everybody had read, or even if they hadn't finished it, we kind of assumed that the books, but of course not everybody's, that we can't do that anymore because we aren't discussing the same book. But back then, we used to just you know, not worry about spoilers because how are you going to discuss a book if you can't talk right. about well, it? Well, I can tell you a bit But in this case, in this case, but not, but nobody else has read it or most yeah. hardly anybody else has read it, if anybody. So I don't know if the rules are different now or what. I don't, I'm not sure. But if you want to, you can go ahead. It's, I can uh, go a little farther. They discover, they figure out that instead of a ship, this is a creature. In itself oh which is interesting and so yeah. they want to find the brain to try to communicate with it and uh, they also find all these giant worms in there with shark teeth that scissor around and kill people and one of the um, astronauts from the other ship is dead and they figure that sort of and they describe it better than I'm going to here but sort of like in Charlotte's Web, where her young are born and she dies, that's sort of how this thing works, and the worms are oh. the young, and this creature oh. is looking for a planet to loose the young, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's, it doesn't really care what planet, it, it's not headed to Earth, but it could be, it could be, it would take whatever it finds, and then it would die, and the young would you know, move on or something like that. Maybe it has more young late. I don't remember. That was kind of confusing. Like I said, the ending is kind of weak. And how they resolve all this stuff and, and handle this thing is, then that's the end that I won't spoil. Okay. It was pretty good. It, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. All right. It does sound like fun. Actually. Wow. 
guess that's it. You know, uh, I have a question. Except for mine. If that's oh, okay. Sure. Yes. Well, just a little history on the group because I'm so new to the science, relatively new to the science fiction group. When, um, what was the thinking behind moving away from this specific book to discuss into just present what you've read? Well, we thought that it would bring, might bring more people in if they didn't feel that they had to read a book like going to school. Some people thought that it was like going to school or having to read an assigned book within a certain amount of time, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it didn't work out as well as I think we had hoped. Uh, I know Lissy doesn't care for the format, um, the current one, but, um, and I really don't know why people couldn't read a book in a whole month. I mean, people can do a lot of things if they want to, but yeah. that's what the kind of a thinking at the time. You know, bring your own, and the fantasy club was doing it for a good while before we were doing it. Um, and uh, their their attendance at least seems to be stable. I'm not sure how many they get. Or if Marshall were here, he does both, or he has done both, and he could tell us. But um, so if there are, but uh, there are other clubs where they're still doing. You know, this month we're going to read this. Uh, that's oh yeah, of, I mean I, most of them are really mystery. this banquet of books and. Yeah, mystery yeah. book and the fiction, uh, whatever. Old and fiction, new. Old and new. They're doing, they're doing their set ideas. book each month, and yeah. So it has its advantages and disadvantages, but uh, that's why we kind of started doing it, and it does give you a good variety of books. You know, since everybody's bringing their own book, it certainly does give you a a, more, a better variety of book than picking a book that you know, everybody reads the same one each month, you know. But it does lack a certain depth to it, that if everybody read a certain book, you'd get multiple perspectives on the same book, which is edifying, you know, at least, you know, to some people. I so that was the thinking. I think one yeah, of I the advantages say. of having a specific book is that it pulls you out of your comfort zone. And sometimes, you know, if you wanted to participate with that particular group, you, you might be drawn to read books that you wouldn't normally read on your own. So that is an advantage to having a specific dedicated book. What's that, Roger? Yeah. I, I was going oh. to say that I, before I became a regular here, I downloaded and listened to the recordings of this these meetings for a long time. And I showed up, I think, altogether about twice. And the reason for me was that I'm, well, I'm always reading whatever I'm reading and to read a specific book that was kind of assigned to me just doesn't fit in with what I am reading. I have to set aside a special time for it and all of that. And that's why I wasn't participating regularly. But when you switched to the bring your own book format, and I recall that was done because the number of people who were showing up for the meetings was diminishing very much. There were only a very few people showing up at all. But when the switch was made, it was like, well, I don't even necessarily have to bring the book that I read in the last month. I, in fact, this time for White Shark, I went back about four and a half years to a book I read then, 
and it was a lot easier for me. So that's when I started becoming a regular myself. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the attendance did go up a bit at first, I think, but now it's down to basically where it was when we switched formats uh, previously with four the last two months, five this time. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what it is next time. But uh, it's no better than it was now, uh, back when we switched. So, anyhow, um, that's the answer. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Liz? Well, it's getting... It's 9.50. I don't have much time, but... I did finish a book I did mention last month, and I, so I'll probably put it in the list again. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to sue me, they can sue me for it. But uh, I did finish Salvation Lost this month, Sherry. You did? Uh, I did. Yeah, I read it over my trip when I, I went uh, to visit my friends and family, and I had some time while I was in transit, and I also had time while I was there sometimes to finish it. It's 495 pages and it's I like it better than the first one but um, there are two plot strands in this book one of them okay I'm spoiling the first book but that's just how it'll have to be but we are at war with aliens who want to pack up all of humanity and bring them to the god at the end of time um, this is actually a plot that has been done before um, a similar plot was in Greg Bear's Eternity, the Jarts, only they called it Descendant Command, or um, where they were packing up races, not just humans, and storing them to take to the end of time to present to their Descendant Command. And so the Oliaks are, um, are they, they came to... In the first book, we, we see them entering into human space, into the solar system, and seemingly benign. We, they, people, they do talk about their religion, but they don't talk about, you know, picking up people and cocooning them as they do in the second book. But what we find at the end of the first book is, um, and you, you can read it for the details, but we find out that the Oleics are taking people who either come to their ship or their or by other nefarious means and putting altered they're putting they're altering their brains and creating these quint mines they're they're that's how they're that's how they're wired up they have five minds that are quantumly entangled so they have a they don't have a unitary cell well it's a kind of a unitary self but anyway at the end of the first book we find out that one of the people on that ship that's telling one of their stories is an alien agent. And when he is killed, the, the aliens find out that the game is up and they've got to move on humanity and take, and they don't want to kill them. They, they take pains not to kill people, though they want to destroy the industry and the infrastructure so they can't resist. But they're being thwarted by other aliens who came to Earth in the first book, but we don't know you know, they don't reveal themselves until the end of the first book when they kill the agent of the... And they come to thwart the alien plot. So you've got two groups of aliens who one group is masquerading as human and the other one is creating, is taking people and 
replacing their brains to still behave as human while they work on spying and sabotaging human industry and their computers and their power systems and stuff so that in the second book they can come and pack them up they 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 have medical technology that they give to people in the first book and it, it extends their lives and, and makes them heal better and, and they're called k-cell transplants but in the second book we find out that these k-cell transplants are ultimately designed to take over the human genome and cause the cocooning of people so that basically they're not really interested in their bodies they're just interested in their brains because that's where their knowledge is and they their whole idea is to pack up their knowledge and take it with them to the god at the end of time so uh and they're pretty invincible technologically now the second plot line i mentioned there were two uh is about ten thousand years in the future and they're humans who have escaped earth and they're on different planets and they have this scheme where they lure these aliens they create these fake civilizations and they lure the aliens in because that's how they found humans to begin with they followed their radio broadcasts and came in and so the idea here is to take the human you know to to lure them in and then destroy them of course you can you know you can't do this everywhere but um the idea is to and eventually try to find the coordinates of the alien enclave because what they do is the enclave is where they get all their they each of these arc ships they come to human worlds and they bring these arc ships and they've got a wormhole connection back to where they ultimately live and they've got an almost unlimited supply of ships that they can send through they call them deliverance ships because they are full of these well they're designed to be full of these cocoons that you know, they pack up, you know, whether it's humans or aliens or whoever, to take with them to the end of time. So that's the basic plot of the second book. It's a bit long, and I know it's surprising to say that of a Hamilton book, because he's usually, <laughs> but it's starting to seem a little repetitive. Some of the characters are kind of similar to characters we've seen in previous books, and he likes his, he likes his missions, you know, where the security people are doing this, and they're running about, and they're, you know, and they're firing, and they're, you know, and they're, and they're, you know, he likes all these details of how, you know, things are set up, and, and uh, so anyway, um, I enjoyed it still pretty good, it's not as good as some of the previous work, but um, it's, I definitely will find, the, the third book is called, the, called Saints of Salvation, I'm going to keep an eye on when it comes out. It might be later this year. I don't know. Um, the last one came out in October, so it'll be a while yet. But I'm keeping an eye out for it, and I will report here when I read it, which I will read it. Bard is not getting these books, apparently. They didn't get the first one. They certainly would have gotten it by now if they were going to get it. And they didn't get the second one either from commercial audio and... And they're not going to get the second one if they didn't get the first one, probably. They do not always finish series, but they usually don't start in the middle. So, um, but yeah, we got these two plot lines. We're at war with the aliens, but people have escaped and they're continuing the war into the future. And so we'll see how it turns out in the third book. And that's it.
Yeah, if they're that long, I probably need to get started, so I'll be ready for the third one. Yeah. So, the plot sounds intriguing, and I really like that author, of course. So. Yeah, I like him, too. Uh, you know, as I said, some things seem to be getting a little repetitive, but it's still good enough, you know, to keep me interested. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and this is the sort of book that Bard so is not getting. Bard. Yeah, Bard's yeah. not getting these. Yeah, well, Bard has most of his books, though. Yeah. I've got to give him that, but oh. um, they do have the Void Trilogy and the commonwealth saga and they mm -hmm. do have great north road and fallen dragon and they but they didn't get the uh fallers they didn't get the or did they maybe they did i don't remember i didn't read them there so i don't remember yeah i don't remember. anyway so it's nine fifty eight. is there anything else anyone has closing up for no today? i must say though that uh I got introduced to Peter F. Hamilton by being in this book group. We That's read. true. Yeah, what First we did, one. Pandora Star or something. Yeah, 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 and that got me hooked. Yeah, no, those were great. Those yeah. were great. He is. He does seem to be able to carry a long book better mm -hmm. than most most authors can. I'd say Tad Williams in the fantasy world is pretty good at that too. He writes a lot of doorstops, and he keeps. He seems to be able to keep it going. Uh, pretty well in the fantasy world. Though I don't know what he's been up to lately. But, but um, that's beyond the scope of this meeting, as people might say. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah um, um, I guess uh, if you like that military science fiction, those um, Honor Harrington books are pretty long. Um, I don't know. I know Anne likes them a lot. I have never read them. But is that some about of them are like 30 hours and something. Is it like a sea captain or something? No, he's a starship. She okay. is a military in the starship, military something. Mm. Uh, hmm. Yeah, it didn't sound very interesting. But um, but they are long. Um, I really don't mind long books. I mean, if they're good. If they're good. I, I don't mind them either. Yeah. I don't yeah. Actually, I like them. If Me too. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I do yeah. too. A Fire Upon the right. Deep is one of my favorite books, and it's 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the meeting, I, we did that book at the meeting one time, and it wasn't everyone else's favorite book. And I'm thinking, are you guys just nuts? <laughs> it's like, your, your favorite book should be everybody's favorite. Why don't uh, they yeah. get it? Yeah. <laughs> There's always but, a risk. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I mean, people didn't hate it, but they just didn't rave about it like I did. <laughs> guys are just not right. <laughs> that is such a marvelous book. Anyway, the next meeting of the Science Fiction Club will be on February 13th. the thirteenth, two thousand twenty. I had to figure that figure that out for a second. Um, yeah, February the 13th, because today is January the 9th, so February the 6th is too soon. The day before Valentine's Day.